Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're taking our Bibles, please, and turning to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you're just joining us this morning, we've been walking through the Gospel of John together as a congregation in a series of messages that I've entitled, So That You Might Believe, the title, of course, coming from the theme of the Gospel of John, which is exactly that. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. This is the purpose of the Gospel of John. And this morning, we're opening our Bibles to John chapter 5, John chapter 5, and we begin our reading in verse 1. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind and halt and withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at the certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. A certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. And Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked. On the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And he answered them, He that made me whole, the same said to me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is this that said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus which had made him whole. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Our focus this morning, the claims of Christ, in one of the greatest passages in all of God's Word, to declare to us the deity of Jesus. I trust the Lord will allow his Word to burn deeply in our hearts this morning. Let's ask the Lord to do that indeed as we pray. Father, I pray that your Word would go down deeply in our hearts today by the power of your Spirit, that we would be convinced and declare with Thomas, my Lord and my God, that we'd say in our hearts and in our lives, it is so, Jesus is God. It is so that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is so that the one who said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again, he did. It is so that he's ascended up into heaven. And it is so that he's coming again. May your word today convince us with conviction as we see the claims of Christ. Help us to see them as if for the first time. Help us to believe with all of our hearts. 
Lord, if there's someone who's in this room today who's never put their faith in Christ, may today be the day of salvation. And Lord, that someone would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And Lord, that we as a congregation in the midst of a time of uncertainty and fear would lift up our eyes and recognize the wonderful truth that our redemption is drawing nigh, that the signs of the times round about us ought to cause our hearts to cry out with John of old, even so come Lord Jesus. So use your word today for the strengthening of our souls and for the commissioning again of your people. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. In his book entitled The Leaven of the Sadducees, Ernest Gordon quotes a Christian college professor who stood before his Christian college students and said, whether Jesus ever lived is a historical question that is interesting. But it's not fundamental to religion. What? It's not unusual to hear Christian professors make scandalous statements. Robert Ingersoll, a famous infidel who went around America spreading his atheistic views, in his latter years became more quiet And so someone asked him, why have you stopped denouncing Christianity? And Robert Ingersoll famously responded, well, the divinity professors in the classrooms and the preachers in the pulpits are doing a fine job without my help. Ours is an age of unbelief. The age of scientific rationalism has given way to postmodern skepticism. We live in a time of crass unbelief where truth is relative. But the Christian believer understands that truth was made visible when Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and walked among us. For he is, after all, the one who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Our blessed Lord, you see, combined in one, two natures, both complete. A perfect manhood, all sublime, in Godhead, all replete. As man, he entered Cana's feast, a humble guest to dine. As God, he moved the water there and changed it into wine. As man, he lay within a boat or powered by needful sleep. As God, he rose, rebuked the wind, and stilled the anguish deep. As man, he wept in heartfelt grief beside a loved one's grave. As God, he burst the bands of death, almighty still to save. Such was our Lord in life on earth, in dual nature one, the woman's seed in very truth, and God's eternal Son. So we open our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 5. We discover a passage that is deeply declaring the deity of Christ. There are some, I've had conversations with them, perhaps you have as well, who actually will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, if you're ever in a conversation with such a person, let me recommend that you turn their attention to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, we discover Jesus making some of his most compelling claims. The deity of Christ is on display in John chapter 5. The works of Jesus prove that he is God. That's the theme of the first 16 verses of this chapter. Then the words of Jesus prove that he is God. 
Beginning in verse 17 to verse 27, Jesus very carefully and very clearly shares his claim to be God indeed. And then we find in the end of this chapter, beginning in verse 28 to the end of the chapter, that Jesus brings forth witnesses to prove that he is God. The English Lord Byron, poet, said, If ever man was God, and if ever God was man... This Jesus was both. The Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte studied the lives of Alexander the Great and the lives of Caesars, and he said, we, including himself with these other emperors, we founded empires on force. Jesus founded his empire on love. Then Napoleon said, I know men. Jesus was not man. But Jesus was man and God. Great statements have been made about Jesus by men and women around the world for millennia. But some of the greatest statements that have ever been made about Jesus are made in John chapter 5 as Jesus lays out his claims to deity, as he shows us indeed who he is. You discover in this chapter that he proved his deity by his work. He proved his deity by his works. In verse 1, we discover that Jesus is by a place called the Pool of Bethesda. Beth is the Hebrew word that means house. Thesda is a Hebrew word that roughly translates means mercy. So this pool was a house of mercy. And Jesus is there at the house of mercy where multitudes of people have gathered because they are miserable. And Jesus comes to this place and ministers to these people, laying his eyes on a man and saying in verse 8, Wilt thou be made whole? And then giving the encouraging commandment that heals this man, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And suddenly a man, who according to verse 5, had for 38 years been unable to rise and take up his bed and walk, who had been waiting for 38 years by this pool of Bethesda in this house of mercy, waiting for healing, suddenly he's walking. And it shouldn't surprise us. Isn't it wonderful to know that Luke 19 and verse 10 says, Jesus came into this world to seek and to save those who were lost. Isn't it wonderful to know that 1 John 4 and verse 14 affirms that it was God's plan that the Father would send the Son to be the Savior of the world? The Apostle Paul would say it this way, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He could have passed by this place where the miserable were gathered, but he didn't. He walked through that place. He walked by the pool of Bethesda, the place where the lambs would be washed in preparation for being offered on the altar there in the temple of Jerusalem. The place where the miserable among the city of Jerusalem waited for some stirring of the water in hopes that they would be healed. He could have walked by there and gone to the home of his friend. His friends that were there in Jerusalem or gone to the home of Mary and Martha, but he didn't. He walked through that place. He walks even here in this place. Fanny Crosby, the blind poetess who wrote over 8,000 hymns, in 1868, she was visiting a detention center in Manhattan. She was singing, though she was blind, ministering poetry that she had written. Before she left, 
One of the desperate prisoners in that place cried out, Good Lord, pass me not by. She was so moved by the desperate cry of that prisoner that she went back and she wrote the famous words, Pass me not, O blessed Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. We pause here at this place called Bethesda to be reminded that our Savior is a merciful Savior who won't pass anyone by. In fact, the Bible says where two or three are gathered in His name, He's in our midst. Isn't it great to look around this morning and see how many are gathered here in His name and reflect on the fact that He promises to, in a very special way, be here today? And then He shows us by His activity that He'll not pass anyone by. In fact, all, He said, who come unto Him, He'll in no wise cast them out. Friend, if you've come this morning and you're seeking to know salvation and the forgiveness of sins. If you need a Savior, Jesus will not pass you by if your heart is crying out for Him. Now here is a miracle that the Lord has performed, and it's a miracle that the Lord is performing to prove His deity. Let me explain. The Gospel of John has often been called the Gospel of the Seven Signs. John weaves together seven of the Lord's miracles. We started back in John chapter 2 where Jesus turned the water into wine. We saw in John chapter 4 how a nobleman's son was healed even while Jesus was not in the place where the nobleman lived. We find here in John chapter 5 the third of those miracles, the third of those signs being woven together with one purpose. They're being woven together to show us the works of Jesus to prove his deity so that we can see that he is God. Now in John chapter 20 and verse 30, John is going to say, and many other signs truly did Jesus do in the presence of disciples that are not written in this book. John purposely chooses seven. And in the end of the gospel of John, the very last passages of this book, John is going to say there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, Jesus did many, many things. But this particular miracle is held out for us to be able to see His mercy, His love, and His grace. And for us to discover how people respond to the works of Jesus. Some respond by receiving Him. In verse 15, the man who has been healed is giving glory to Jesus, really, when he tells the Jews that it was Jesus who made him whole. And even in this room this morning, there are those who have received Christ, who could give testimony of the difference that He's made in their lives, the blessing of forgiveness of sin, the joy of knowing eternity in heaven, the glory of being able to understand God's Word when it's open before you or when you read it. These are the testimonies of those who receive Him. But unfortunately, when the works of Jesus are considered, there will be many who will reject Him. And so it is in verse 16. The Jews, having heard that this man was made whole on the Sabbath, that this man was now carrying his bed on the Sabbath day, having confronted this man, their anger towards, turns toward Jesus. Therefore the, did the Jews persecute Jesus, verse 16, and sought to slay him because he'd done these things on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath patrol is out. These, the Pharisees, with sirens blazing, 
are approaching Jesus. There's a violation of some Sabbath law. After all, Jesus had told this man to rise and take up his bed, and that would be a violation of the law. There was to be no taking up of beds and no carrying of any weight on the Sabbath. And there was the question, was it even right to heal somebody on the Sabbath day after all? The Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat to their interpretation of the Bible and a threat to the religious monopoly that they enjoyed. And so how did they respond? Verse 16 says they sought to slay him. Verse 18 says they sought the more even to kill him. You will run into people who will say, if I saw a miracle, I would believe. (laughs) Don't believe it. There are many who saw the miracles and did not believe. In fact, in John chapter 12 and verse 37, the Word of God says, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Think about it. Around this room this morning, there are some whose lives are so radically changed that the world cannot explain it. It's a miracle of God's grace. People have met such individuals, and yet their heart has not been moved. Instead, they come up with some other way of reasoning, that there was some kind of psychiatric challenge that has been met, and so they move on. People see miracles. We began the service this morning by declaring, by God's grace, an offering that we prayed for for $80,000 without anyone seeding that offering or saying, let me supply for the end so we'll reach the goal. God brought it in. How did that happen? It happened as an answer to prayer. And there are those who will hear of such things and will say, well, okay, but must be a coincidence. I was out fishing with a friend here in the church a number of years ago. We were in a boat most of the morning with his friend who doesn't know the Lord as Savior, and he'd been praying for his friend, and we weren't catching anything. The time was limited, so the host said, well, why don't we just go ahead and eat lunch? Pastor, why don't you pray for the lunch? And I knew I had about an hour left before we had to leave, and so I bowed my head, and I very quickly prayed, Lord, Bless the food that we're about to enjoy and give us some fish to catch before we leave. And no kidding, just as I lifted my eyes, the poles began to bend. (laughs) But just before the poles began to bend, the fellow who was in the boat who was not a believer said this as he looked at me, he smiled and he said, you know, if we start catching fish now, I guess it's going to make a believer out of me. I think the Lord let those poles begin to bend to show that man something. I wish I could say it made a believer out of him, but it didn't. In this passage, Jesus is doing the mighty works of God. There's no denying it. The works of Jesus prove his deity. His ability to heal a man who was infirm for 38 years, the lepers, the blind, the lame. His ability to teach. His ability to still the waves. His ability to raise the dead. His works prove his deity. And his deity is not only proved by his works, it's proved in this passage by his words. In verse 16, the Jews sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So let's listen carefully, beginning in verse 17, how the Lord claims to be God. Beginning in verse 17, Jesus answered and said, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Don't make any mistake here, the Jews sought the more than to kill him, verse 18, because he had not only broken the Sabbath in their estimation, but he said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. 
what he said was not an accidental declaration. He knew the response it would muster, and he was bold. You're going to read, beginning in verse 19, these words woven together by the Lord. Verily, verily, those same words in verse 24, verily, verily, again in verse 25, verily, verily, Jesus is speaking boldly to those who want to kill him. He's speaking boldly to those who want to kill him, who have already seen his mighty work, who cannot deny and will not deny his miraculous power. But he's speaking to them with his words, declaring the fact that he is God. He's declaring his deity. He's laying forward his claims. And he does so with three themes that are being developed in this portion of God's word. I want you to see them with me this morning. I want you to see how Jesus spoke of his relationship with the Father. You see it there in verse 17, my Father worketh hitherto, and I work. You're going to see it again in verses 19 and 20. But Jesus says, note it, my Father. He doesn't use the customary phrase, our Father. He doesn't say, the Father. He is very personal. He says to those who are accusing him, who want to kill him, my Father. He's speaking in a very special sense. Such a special sense that those who hear him in verse 17 understood clearly that he was making himself equal with God. Jesus was very bold in the Gospel of John to declare his equality with the Father. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus actually says, I and my Father are one. In John chapter 14 and verse 9, he's going to say, Philip, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Now in this passage, Jesus nine times is going to refer to himself as Son. He loves that title. It's a title that comes from the book of Daniel. It's a title that Jesus uses most often. It's a title that speaks of the Godhead. He calls himself the Son of Man. And here he references himself as Son nine times, beginning in verse 19 down to verse 26. Because he wants us to see his relationship with the Father. Jesus explains in verse 17 that his work is like the Father's work. My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Now wait a minute. Even the Father rested on the Sabbath day, his accusers would have said. For on the seventh day he rested from all the work that he'd done, the book of Genesis says. What is Jesus saying the Father works and I work in reference to the Sabbath. Well, thank the Lord, God's works of mercy and God's works of grace and God's works of love continue even on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is here clarifying that just as the Father shares these works of grace and mercy and love on the Sabbath day, even so, I share that same character and my work is ongoing, my ministry is ongoing. I take no respite when it comes to the ministry that I have to those who are miserable. He explains that his work is like the Father's. Then in verse 19, he explains that he's united with the Father. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Now, wait a minute, is Jesus saying here that he has no authority or that he cannot act independently? No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's using rabbinic reasoning in verse 19. And he's saying that I do the same works, the very same works, the very same acts that God the Father is doing. He's not denying his independence here. No, he's saying I am in such 
constant communion and communication with the Father that what he does, I do. I have a granddaughter who loves to play the violin. She's in fifth grade and she tried out for a middle school orchestra recently and with the tryout they said, we're going to make you first chair and she declined. She said, I've never played in an orchestra before. I don't know what the first chair does. But she knew enough to know that the first chair in the orchestra knows the bowing and everyone else along the line follows in the bowing of the first chair. Jesus similarly here in this passage is saying, I know what the Father is doing. I'm in constant communion with the Father. So there's no independent work that he is doing that I'm not doing together. We are together in this wonderful ministry that you see ongoing here at the Pool of Bethesda and in my earthly ministry. I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for what things he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. We're in the orchestra together, so to speak. And then as you come to verse 20, Jesus explains that his knowledge is equal with the Father's. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. He will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. Unlike others who cannot understand the ways of God, for they're too high for us, his thoughts are high and lifted up, not so the Son. His knowledge is that immense knowledge that the Father enjoys. He is one, after all, with the Father. You know, when a baby is born, people will look at that baby and they say, oh, he has his mother's eyes. Oh, he's got his father's nose. We've come to appreciate resemblances in our family a great deal as the Lord has added grandchildren, especially in watching Chase. Jesus is saying in this passage in no ambiguous terms, when you see me, you see the reflection of the Father, for the Father and I are one. Our works are the same. There is that unitedness that is ever so evident in my ministry, and the knowledge that I have is the very same knowledge that the Father has. And he begins in verse 21 to speak of a second theme. Now he speaks of his resurrection power. He's spoken of his relationship with the Father. And in verse 21, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. He's going to develop this theme to prove his deity, that he alone has power over life, that he has resurrection power. In verse 24, Verily, verily, I say to you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Verily, verily, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. They that hear shall live, for as the Father hath life in himself, so he hath given the Son to have life in himself. And then in verse 28, Jesus focuses on the resurrection as he says, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. You know, if a person's in the hospital and they're having a cardiac event, someone is going to look for a defibrillator. They're going to grab the paddles, and you're going to hear those words that you hear on TV and actors saying, clear! Somebody's going to get zapped back into rhythm, right? We hope so. What if a physician came down Code blue, code blue, they, they announced. And he came running into the room. And someone's looking for the defibrillator. And he said, don't worry about the defibrillator. I have power to bring life to this person. He steps over to the person, pulls his hands out, says, clear, clear. Puts his hand. People would not be 
clearing out because they're afraid of the electricity. They'd be clearing out because they think the guy's nuts. Folks, in this passage, you realize that Jesus just said, I have the power to give life to the dead. That is a claim that only God can make, and it's a claim that boldly Jesus makes. I have the power to give life to the death, and he's talking to the dead, and he's talking about two kinds of life-giving power. In verse 24, Jesus says, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Here he's speaking of spiritual life. He's able to give spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead if they will hear his words, if they will believe that he died in their place, if they will believe that by receiving the gracious gift of salvation that he he offers, they can have everlasting life. That's spiritual life. And many in this room would say, praise the Lord, he gave it to me. But he also speaks here of physical life. Physical life-giving power. Verse 25, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall live. This is power to bring the physically dead back to life. You see, the Bible is a book that boldly declares that God who gave us life that no one else can explain and no scientist can ever recreate, but the same God who gave us life can give us life again. The Bible declares the resurrection In verse 28, Jesus actually says, Don't marvel at this. The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Three times during his earthly ministry, Jesus raises the dead. He raises the dead when he meets the widow of Nain. He raises the dead when he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. He raises the dead when he heals the servant of Jairus. And one day soon, praise the Lord, Jesus is going to give life to those who are in the grave. Marvel not at this. (laughs) Jesus never claimed to be God. In his relationship with the Father, he claims to be God. In his power over the resurrection, he claims to be God. And when he speaks of the responsibility that he alone has as judge of the universe, he claims to be God. In verse 22, For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, For he hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing, as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which sent me. Jesus, you see, is uniquely fitted to be the perfect judge. He alone is God and man. He understands our infirmities. He was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, the Bible gives us the wonderful promise that God hath appointed a day in which Jesus will judge the world. You see, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And who is the judge before whom we'll one day stand? Jesus. Why him? He's God. He's God. He's the judge of the universe. Pondering the fact of the relationship so unique that Jesus has with the Father. Pondering Jesus' claims to life-giving power and pondering how Jesus is judge of the universe. C.S. Lewis very famously said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic or 
or else he'd be the devil from hell. C.S. Lewis went on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool. You cannot spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall on his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He claims to be God in his works. He claims to be God in his words. He claims to be God by the witnesses now that he draws forward. Beginning in verse 31 of this same chapter, Jesus, having presented his case like an attorney before the jury, having laid out his case and claim to deity to be God, he recognizes that witnesses have to verify his claim. That's what he's saying in verse 31 when he says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. He's not saying, I'm telling you a lie. What he's doing is he's saying, I understand Greek law, I understand Roman law, I understand Jewish law, that one testimony is not enough to convict, not enough to convince. If I give witness of myself, I understand that that's not significant enough. So let me bring forward my witnesses. Having presented my case, let me now present the witnesses that will stand on my behalf. In verse 32, Jesus calls on the Father God to witness on his behalf. When he says in verse 32, there's another that beareth witness of me. Another? This one that he speaks of here is none other than God the Father. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, the word another is one of two words in the Greek language. There's the word heterodos. We get our word heterodox. It's another of a different kind. Then there's the word alas, which means another of the same kind. Jesus uses that word here. There's another of the same kind who will give witness of me, and if we don't get the understanding that this is indeed God the Father. Look at verse 37. In verse 37, Jesus says, And the Father himself which has sent me hath borne witness of me. When did he do that? When Jesus was baptized, the heavens were opened, and the voice of the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father has borne witness to the deity of Christ. In verses 33 to 35, Jesus calls on the witness of John the Baptist, the great prophet that was so revered and respected in his day. In verse 33, John bare witness unto the truth. Remember, John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 35, Jesus says, Now that John was a burning and a shining light. And you were willing even for a season to rejoice in that light. You saw something special in John. You gathered to hear him preach. You were baptized by him, but he pointed to me. He draws on a third witness in verse 36 when he says, Now the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, and they bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. One by one, he's lining up the witnesses. He said, You can hear the voice of the Father. You can hear the voice of John the Baptist. You can look at my very works. Nicodemus, the great rabbi in John chapter 3, when he came to Jesus by night, said, Rabbi, we know that thou art come from God. For we see your works, and no one can deny them. In verse 39, Jesus calls on the witness of Scripture. He says, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. It's an impressive audience of witnesses that are being drawn together 
to verify the words that Jesus has spoken that declare his deity. And in verse 46, Jesus says, For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. He wrote of me. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, Moses wrote of the day when the seed of the woman would come and destroy the head of the serpent. Praise the Lord. In Genesis 49, Moses wrote of the day when the one from the tribe of Judah would come and bear the scepter. Praise the Lord. In the books and writings of Moses, we read of a serpent that was held up, and if people looked at that serpent, they could be healed of the serpent's bites. Praise the Lord. Moses, as he led the people in the wilderness, saw God provide the manna and Jesus as the bread of life. He saw God provide the water and Jesus as the water that makes everyone who's thirsty drink. Moses spoke of me. In John chapter 5, Jesus claims to be God. His works, his words, his witness. Jesus is not simply presenting facts. Now listen, he's not simply presenting facts in this passage so that we can say, yeah, it does seem like Jesus was claiming to be God. No, no, that's not his purpose. Look at verse 34. In verse 34, Jesus said, These things I say that you might be saved. There's his purpose. And those who will receive what Jesus has declared and believe him to be the Son of God indeed, to believe him to be God, very God, and man, Believe him to be the God who shed his blood on the cross for sins and was given the promise that all who will come to him will in no wise be cast out. They can have everlasting life. These are the words he says, I share so that you can be saved. But there are many people who will say, well, you know, if I love God and do good works, I can go to heaven. Larry King was interviewing John MacArthur on television many years ago. The end of, end of the interview when the cameras were turned off, Larry King said to John MacArthur, I'm going to be okay. And John MacArthur said, what do you mean? Well, Larry King said, I spoke to somebody who told me that because I believed in God, I was going to be okay. So I'm going to be okay. Folks, that is not true. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 23, the Word of God says, Whosoever denieth the Son, denieth the Father. For the same hath not the Father. You can't deny the deity of Jesus and be part of God's family. If you would have everlasting life, you need to believe that Jesus is God. The gospel message in Acts 16.31 is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In a world postmodern and cynical, that's ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus stands forward and says, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. The salvation story is a story of one, Jesus Christ. For there's no other God under heaven, and no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The Muslim will talk of Jesus being another prophet. The Buddhist and the Hindu will pass over Jesus or just put him into the pantheon of other gods. The Mormon will put Jesus on the same level as Satan himself, as brothers together before one went one way and one went another. The Jehovah's Witness will say he's not eternal God. But Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father.
And the only way to salvation is to receive the wonderful, merciful, loving gift that Jesus gave when he died for our sins. By his works, he proved his deity. By his words, he declared it. By the witnesses that he assembled, he made it profoundly obvious that he and he alone is God. And that's why we worship him. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If it has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org or check us out on Facebook. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Podcast.